and welcome to another bonus episode of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, strategies, and MTGO grinders for the casual spike. My name is Stan here in Chicago, and with me on the line all the way from Miami, Florida, it's the one and only M. Hayashi. Matt, how are you? Yeah, hey Stan, doing uh, doing good. How about you? I am doing great. I'm so thrilled we get to chat. I've been a huge fan of your decks for years now. They have led me to a lot of success in modern, especially. And I'm really thrilled that I get to pick your brain about some of your deck building choices, how you approach different um, strategies within modern and how you innovate on them and uh, getting the brain of a really great magic player and brewer. (laughs) Well, that's flat. Well, that's uh, it's so flattering to hear that. But uh, you know, uh, hey, I'm just a guy just trying to have fun with my hobby. You know, <laughs> so totally. I appreciate that. Totally. Well, I think one of the best ways to kick off the show in a fun way is a little section that we like to call "Inside the Grinder Studio," and what this is is five lightning ra- lightning round questions um, that you can provide as little or as much detail as you want in your answers. So it could be a word or a sentence. Um, just to give us a little insight into what some of your MTG preferences are. So the first question, as part of the Grinder Studio, Matt, what's your favorite Magic the Gathering card? Uh, my favorite single Magic the Gathering card. I only get to pick one, huh? Only one. Well, I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a cliche answer, but I mean, um, obviously, I got a soft spot for a Lightning Bolt, um, but. I don't know, though. I mean, I really freaking like Firebolt, too. But the problem is Firebolt's not in my most recent lists. Uh, but boy, do I like Firebolt. Um, what is yeah, it about I mean, Firebolt that, that you like since it's, you know, you know it feels kind of dinky, right? Okay, you know, that that actually, I think, d- may, might make for a good story. So, okay, when I when we first started playing, when me and my, uh, my original group first played uh, Magic, we had no idea about like standard extended, like all the different formats. We just played like whatever we had, which I think is pr- pretty much the norm. And that was all fine and dandy until one of our, like somebody in our group got their hands on four freaking lightning bolts. And I will never forget when they had three, un- when they like, they only had three red mana. I was at nine life and I thought, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm winning this. And then bam, triple lightning bolt and I'm dead. <laughs> And that just felt like so freaking unfair. So what happened is I was the first guy to figure out the whole format system because I just felt like there's something wrong here. I'm like, I think that this card, because I was looking at like shock and I'm like, why would they print something like shock? And even to some extent, Firebolt, which I also loved, is mm-hmm. like, 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 because I like playing cards like uh, Firebolt, and like the cards I had were more like Firebolt, Shock, like, you know, the ones that were actually in standard at the time, which was like Invasion Odyssey time. And like, you know, obviously this guy was blowing me out of the water with Lightning Bolt, and I just felt like something's off here. You know, why is, why do they have Lightning Bolt and also Shock? It wasn't really adding up. So that's when I looked online and I actually figured out, oh, there's like, uh, there's like different types of formats and, you know, so then I got my my group to basically play what was a uh, what was then extended, and um, and I guess part of what I just like about Firebolt is, is it, I guess it's just it's just one of the most it was just one of the most solid burn spells back back in that time period. And honestly, I think if you if you take Lightning Belt out of the equation, not that that'll ever happen, or that not that I want that to happen, heaven forbid. But like if for whatever reason Lightning Bolt got taken out of the equation, uh, probably Firebolt would be right up there. I think. I mean, it's. One mana for two damage that also comes back for two more damage later. I think that's uh, 
I mean, at least for like a slay type strategy, not 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 for like a burn burn because right. you know burn burn's not really going to get to five all that often, or if it does, uh, oftentimes they've already gained some life or something. And anyway, but yeah. like yeah, for like a slay type strategy where you just want to be clearing the board and you want some extra reach. I mean, ooh, that's golden. You clear the board early on and you even have some like late game reach for five mana later in the game. It's really not much more you can ask for. So when Modern Horizons one first came out and was spoiled, were you just ecstatic that? Firebolt was getting added into the format and was yes it a and goal no. of yours to play it? Uh, well, ecstatic, yes or yes and no in the sense that I, I, I was hit with another, like, an immediate nostalgia bomb, so I will say that much. However, one of my first thoughts was like, oh man, I want to play this card, but like, there's not really like a home for it. At least mm-hmm. not yet, because when it was first spoiled... Gee, I'm trying to think back. Like when it was first spoiled, was I was I already was I already like heading towards like an Obosh type variant, like I have now. And of course, before Obosh, like I was playing these Gigantha prowess type decks right. until until I forget somebody or something somehow. I think somebody suggested Obosh even before I had a YouTube channel. I think somebody in Reddit or something is like, "Why isn't this guy playing Obosh?" And I'm like, "Oh, geez, like why am I not?" Yeah. And uh, but yeah, anyway, that's long story short. I, I, I don't know 100% sure if this is the case, but I, I have a feeling that Firebolt may have nudged me ever so slightly towards going a little bit more away from Burn and more towards like Red Deck wins, Gigantha slash Obosh type, you mm-hmm. know, prowess slash midrange slash, you know, whatever whatever you call it nowadays, ha- Dragon Hammer, like I call it now. Um, yeah, just, uh, you know, because that's, because honestly, that's the kind of Red Deck I used to play back in the day. And, um, yeah, I was just—I guess I was just kind of stoked, and but honestly, you know, the real reason why I kind of started moving away from burn and more towards like, uh, you know, you could say red deck wins, whatever yeah. these types of decks I'm playing. You know why? Tell me why. It was freaking Oko Thief of Crowns. That's that's really that was like my epiphany moment. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I remember it was around that time period that I started I started experimenting with uh, playing different type a different type of red deck. Uh, actually, the first experiment I made was just playing straight straight up like Bedlam Reveler or traditional type of mono red prowess mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I because like the thing is. I mean, apparently, like, other Burn players figured out ways that they could kind of still stay in the game with Oko. And honestly, like, a Roiling Vortex would have been amazing if that would have been printed a, a little earlier. And maybe right. I would still be on Burn if they'd, ha- if they'd had that. Uh, not that I necessarily would want to, because it's funny, because sometimes, you know, like, um, what is the saying? Uh, limitation breeds creativity, kind of. Right, right, right. Because when, when Oko was there gating three life left and right, like, demanding, like, double Lightning Bolt to deal with, um, I just, I just felt like... You know, it wasn't necessarily just Oko per se, but for me, when Oko hit the scene, I guess I would I just I just had kind of a panic moment where I'm like, geez, if Wizards is gonna keep printing ridiculously powerful cards like this that just gain a, a ton of life as like an afterthought, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know if Burn is gonna be the kind of deck that I can keep sinking in, you know, hours and hours of like, you know, my free time, like getting better at it, and it's really gonna totally pay dividends. Cause you know, the worst case scenario is you become like a like a true burn master, and then like the deck just becomes completely unplayable. And then that's like you know, you feel like a lot of a lot of effort kind of was wasted. So it's not completely because there is obviously some overlapping skills and all that, but just just For this sure. like existential horror of just <laughs> wizards just flooding the format with ridiculously efficient life gain type effects that aren't even like mainly dedicated to life gain. It's just like an afterthought. So, so that's kind of when I started first experimenting with regular prowess. Which some people said regular prowess wasn't really good against Oko. I, I found that I was doing a lot better with regular prowess against. Oko back then. Um, yeah, I mean, when I look back on the Oko period, I just remember playing bad cards that I didn't care if they turned into elk, and that was like one of the only periods when I was 
on Delver, actual Delver in modern, because then I could do like deprive Mystic Sanctuary loops in a Delver shell. And that way, if my one drop turned into an elk, didn't really hurt. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar idea. Like the thing, the thing that I noticed about Oko was that obviously it punished you for it punished you like in the sense that it as soon as it hit the battlefield, if you're playing regular burn, you had to like finish the game. You had to finish the game really quickly because mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, burning Oko wasn't where you wanted to be. I mean, if they had exactly one Oko in hand, sometimes you could you could use like two lightning bolts or something on it. And you could still you could still find a way to win, but right. heaven forbid they have another Oko, then you're just done. So like you, directing two bold effects at a at Boko at a, a Boko <laughs> at Oko was never <laughs> was never where you really where you wanted to be. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the same time though, like. It just de- it just demanded that you end the game very quickly because obviously if the game goes on they they just have infinite life so right so like so my my thinking of like in like you know starting to experiment first with like regular prowess was just um was just that you know if you think about it regular prowess doesn't care as much about life game because it's got all those like prowess creatures and whatnot and that's you know mm-hmm. that's the main way it wins anyway is just crashing through with lots of uh lots of uh prowess creatures that get like pumps and stuff um. You know, and like so, so in that way, it kind of gets around the life gain, uh, you know, to a large extent. But also, like the fact that the creatures have a base power and toughness that's kind of less than three means that the uh, the the plus one for Oko was also not like backbreaking. Some people said that it was pretty bad to get your prowess creatures, you know, turned into elks. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's like you know, I I always felt like it was about the same. I mean, right? You know, <laughs> my creatures all usually ended up being like two threes or three fours anyway, so it's like not that big big of a difference. Um. So yeah, I guess I just uh, I don't know, and, and you know, and my playtesting did indicate I, I was doing a lot better against Oko. Of course, the, the bigger issue with the Oko decks was, of course, that it's just one freaking card, and obviously, like in the right shell where they have other cards to take advantage of it, still it could sometimes be a problem. Right? Weren't they like Urza decks also, so they can like do Ur- Oko shenanigans and then and then Urza out to win the game? Yeah, that that was that was kind of not fun. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, red has super good artifact hate because those otherwise those Urza tokens, they can still be somewhat of a problem Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if those things get too big, then you have to use like multiple burn spells on them. And that's never that's never going to be. But um, but yeah, like uh, but at the end of the day, I did feel I was doing better. The main problem I had with uh, regular mono red prowess, you know, the regular kind of Bedlam Reveler type was um. I mean, it really just came down to the fact that I felt the deck was way too reliant on Bedlam Reveler, you know. And I, I, not, I know, that, yeah, I don't know that everybody necessarily feels the same way because obviously there are some matchups where like you just win quickly. Uh, that's really what you're going for, you know, like most of the combo matchups and whatnot. But I just found it like in almost every, in almost every control mid range other aggro type deck, like really really the way I won was Bedlam Reveler, which you know probably I'm not going to lie, probably sixty to seventy percent of the time. Not too many complaints about Bedlam Reveler. The problem is twofold. The problem is first against. I mean, the problem. For, the first problem is kind of an intrinsic problem. But you know, if it's just an intrinsic problem, I guess sometimes you just have to accept. Accept uh, sometimes the things the way they are. I mean, the intrinsic issue is just that. Um, of course, like you know, you only got you can only play a maximum of four of them in your deck. And of course, knowing me, of course, I was playing four. Sure. Um, and I never really, I never really found four to be like that much worse. I mean, sure. Sometimes I'd have to discard an extra Bendler Reveler, but it's like, so, you know, what almost, when are you, it's, uh, I mean, how often do you not discard at least one card with Bendler Reveler? At least with me, even if it was another Bendler Reveler, usually there was always like one other semi-dead card in, in my hand or something, usually a sure. land or something that I was discarding. So it's like, it was never that big of a deal for me. 
Um, but honestly, even four kind of felt like in a way it wasn't enough because there was still there was more games than you'd think where I just never drew Bedlam Reveler, you know, mm-hmm. and of course, and of course, you know, like, of course, you, you know, you, you, I suppose you have the right to complain. But I mean, at the end of the day, like, for example, your odds of drawing Bedlam Reveler, if you have four of them in your deck are about the same as drawing Aether Vial and Merfolk. And I knew that there was a limit to just how much I could I could, you know, write that off as being unlucky because there's a lot of games in Merfolk. I never see Aether Vial. That's just kind of the way it goes. I mean, like, you're not guaranteed to see to see even one card as a four of like when the top like 10, 20 cards in your deck. I mean, sure, 20 is probably getting a little unlucky, but I mean, hey, I, I've played enough Merfolk where you, where you know whether you're seeing Aether Vial or not that I that I know, you know, like I'm not guaranteed to see it. And um, yeah. so that's the first issue. But I mean, it is what it is. Obviously, for example, I mean, like with with like uh, these Obos Prowess decks, I mean, I feel like I'm I feel like Season Pyromancer is kind of an, an, an analogy there. And I'm that's no knock against Season Pyromancer. It's just the nature of the game. But um. The second, the second issue, and you know, now we're getting into territory that isn't just kind of the fundamental nature of the game. Like, I hear, I hear some people say that graveyard hate isn't good against Bedlar Reveler, and I, I think these people, they're what? probably, yeah, yeah. See what I mean? I, I, I think, I think, I think, I think when you hear that, I think what you're hearing that from is people who probably haven't played prowess enough to to know the difference between people who are not bringing graveyard in, graveyard hate in correctly or using it correctly, and people mm-hmm. who are. Because like when I was playing against some like Stoneblade decks and whatnot, you know, I, I I don't think they were overdoing it. I think they were bringing in like like two rest in pieces or something, and and maybe I don't know. And other decks had like a, maybe a few relic of Progenitus's or or whatever other types of cards in the mix. I just felt like when they weren't overdoing it and they were bringing in like just a few a few kind of you know hate pieces, I just felt like it was it, it was kind of nasty because they just dropped like for example they just dropped one rest in peace they never seem to have like more than one so my guess is they only brought in like two which of course sometimes if they don't see it i guess it is what it is but every time they saw it it just felt like basically all my bedlam revelers were just turned off yes so it's like one card just shut off bedlam reveler for the rest of the game so that was kind of that was kind of you know and obviously against like stoneblade type decks that's like that's very critical um so that was one issue um uh, and I guess a, I guess a corollary to that is that um, I really, as you know, I really like Relic of Progenitus, and mm-hmm. if, you know, and I'm, as you as, as we all know, most regular prowess decks just don't play it, and for good reason because you know, obviously, it messes with your own graveyard, which is a big no no with uh with Bedlam Reveler, and that was another problem I had. Like Tormod's Crypt for me was just not doing it, and I know it's like weird that I would think about switching, like you know, fundamentally kind of changing the way a deck works because of a sideboard card, but I mean, realistically, graveyard. Graveyards are just such an integral part of modern that honestly, it, it it makes really a huge difference the quality of your graveyard hate. If you have better quality graveyard hate, you're actually going to see a lot more wins. I mean, period. Sure. And and I'm telling you, like, uh, yeah, Tormach Crypt. Um, and I think I don't know if at the yeah Soul Guide Lantern maybe it just come out. I actually wasn't aware of Soul Guide Lantern until a little bit later. Um, but well, uh, I think, wasn't Lan- no Lantern was the set after Ultra. I think it, it was, was in, uh, born. I mean, what's it called? Um, the Nyx and the Return to Nyx set. Yeah, yeah, the 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 another return, yeah, the Theros Beyond Death, I think, or something like that. Right, right, right. But yeah, um, in any case, that that you know, not gonna lie, um, uh, Soul Guide Lantern is pretty good. Um, and I and I might and you know, there's a possibility that if uh, I was aware of Soul Guide Lantern, I I might have you know, I might have dabbled in regular prowess a little bit longer because that is definitely very, very high quality, good graveyard hate, but. I'm still going to go out on a limb here, and I'm still going to say there, there's still like a there's a bigger difference I think still between Soul Guide Lantern and Relic of Progenitus than there is between Soul Guide Lantern and uh, Tor- and Tormod's Crypt, and I think Soul Guide Lantern is is way better than Tormod's Crypt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I mean, the reason why Soul Guide Lantern is better than Tormod's Crypt, in my opinion, is a uh, is um 
very simple. I mean, the fact that you can draw a card with it is, is really huge because that means multiples just don't become this awkward nonsense. Right. I mean, one of the biggest problems with Tormod's Crypt is like, I mean, you want to play, I, I, I needed to play four because obviously if I'm against dreads, what am I doing? Like, you know, dirtling with like three of these. <laughs> I don't know if the dirtle is the right word, but you know, what am I doing? Like messing around with just playing three. If I'm playing against dredge, I'm, I'm half to mulligan into this stuff. And, you know, and obviously like I get dredge isn't a good example because obviously with dredge, like, you know, uh, Tormat script is probably better than um soul guide lantern against dredge specifically, because when are you, when are you ever cycling soul guide lantern? Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking more like other decks and honestly, even against other decks, I, 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 you know, oftentimes if I'm bringing in graveyard hate, their graveyard is doing something powerful enough that I really want to have access to at least one of these things during a game. <clears throat> and I really want to maximize my chances. So I'm, I'm really looking for four copies, but like, I mean, just think about, for example, playing against, um, you know what's a good example? Well, well, uh, I'm I'm thinking about like when I think about Soul Guide Lantern and and its position in the format, I think it's excellent in like an environment where I have to care about maybe escape cards because I think that's what it's best at. Yeah, right. The fact that it tags a, the fact that it tags a graveyard card as soon as it comes down that you can then like if you only need to worry about Uro or Kroxa, um, or or just like a single other one of graveyard payoff. Then you get to cycle it and and practically get a two for one out of your opponents and theory exactly counting on getting that graveyard card back, or you know it could do that Tormod's crypt impression where you get it down, maybe it tags something that is important to them or or not, but then you always get to threaten activation. Yeah, their whole graveyard exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think Kroxa and um and uh, Uro are the perfect examples. I was going to say Tarmogoyf, but of course that that's one of the big reasons why I like Relic, of course, because yeah. <laughs> because a little guy lantern really doesn't do much against uh, Tarmogoyf. But obviously, um, you know, the di- like escape being a huge problem is a uh, definitely a much less of an issue nowadays. But Oro and Kroxa are good. <clears throat> excuse me, a good example. Kroxa, of course, is still uh, excuse me, is still with us to some extent, but uh, but uh, Oro is a very good example because. Yeah, a card like Oro just to me really demonstrates why like a card like Soul Guide Lantern is just infinitely better than Tormod's Crypt for the most part. Because um yeah, because exactly like like you just said, you get to nab it, you know, possibly cycle it. But also just that um but also just that like if you see multiples, it's just not like it's just not virtual dead dead cards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um because a lot of times, uh, a lot of times, like you just need to kind of destabilize them a bit, and then and then kind of try to capitalize and go for the go for the win type of situation. But I mean, like for me, anyway, I, I know this is kind of taking a while, but but yeah, for for, for me, relic relic. <laughs> yeah, so is far, really... all I've asked you is, what's your favorite magic card? Oh, you see, I kind of lost track of what the uh, original question was, but we kind of been jiving, right? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. You you've yeah, already yeah. won the record for the most detailed answer to the first question to ever be asked in a bonus episode. Oh yeah, cool. At this point, uh, I almost feel like it's going to be a disservice to go through all five lightning round questions. But I do want to ask before we get off this this tangent altogether, and and before we really dive into like the M Hayashi decks as I know them, what's your least favorite magic card? Oh yeah, my least favorite magic card. Well, see, I mean, obviously, like I could pick. I could pick something that we all know is a bad card, like Chimney Imp or something, but I'm not going to say that because <laughs> because I've never played Chimney Imp. I don't really have any negative feelings associated with it. Um, <laughs> so just so I mean, geez, least favorite Magic card. Oh yeah, because I guess another way you could interpret that is like uh, is like obviously a card that causes frustration and whatnot. Um, I, well, I want to know what causes you the most frustration when you're in a modern league or, or any format and someone you know, play something against you and you're just like, oh, I, should, man. I should scoop now. Hot. To, so yeah. So no offense. Uh, I don't mean this as any offense to any Titan players, 
but maybe amulet maybe maybe not amulet maybe um uh primeval titan mm-hmm. like it's I mean, Primeval Titan, I, I have to imagine, is a fun card to cast. I don't think I've ever actually cast it. No, actually, I think I've proxied up a um a legacy like 12th post deck once or something. Um, but, you know, I uh, I don't think I've like really played it seriously ever. Um, there's just something I think a little frustrating about a card that basically wins the game and it's like a one card combo, but it also doesn't actually just win the game when it comes down. It just kind of makes the game a hopeless situation. Right. And I, and the most frustrating feeling in the world is feeling that like the game is basically lost, but you still, but you still have to play on because you feel like a chump playing on, but then you feel like a chump uh, scooping. So it's just like, you're just in, you're in, you're in the twilight zone of, of feeling like a chump. <laughs> is, is this, is primeval Titan the reason why your last red deck that I'm aware of had four ensnaring bridge in the side, even though it's like not a Karn duck that cheats it out, but needs to actually draw it. Uh, no, actually, uh, I think ensnaring bridge, if it comes in at all, and I'm st- and honestly, I'm still experimenting. Um, I'm still experimenting with with ensnaring bridge. Like, uh, I, I I do not know all the nooks and crannies yet of where all I'm bringing it in, uh, mm-hmm. how how many of them I bring in. Because when you're bringing in four, you're absolutely not bringing all, all four in every single matchup. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I would say where I'm at right now is if it even comes in at all against Amulet Titan, it probably only comes in as a two of, I think. And the reason why is that it's really great at stopping an Amulet Titan once it's in play. But the problem is, is uh, if it's already in play and they drop another Titan, they can just go get a uh, Trelaria West and then go get EE on three. And guess what? They also want EE on three for Blood Moon. So, right. yeah. So then they just wipe your both your, both your Blood Moon and your uh, <laughs> Ensnaring Bridge and... Um, I mean, like, I haven't tried it yet, but I know from experience that, like, three mana hate cards against uh, against Amulet Titan is not exactly in the best place because of that, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But um, having... Uh, I find that six moon effects are a pretty good sweet spot for Amulet Titan anyway. Like, honestly, I mean, when I had eight, I mean, I think I was pretty set. But having just four Blood Moons and two Mages of the Moon, I, I think that's actually surprisingly... Um, it, it's better than you might think. I, I think... The, I, I think, uh, what's it called? Uh, Ragavan is a big part of that also because uh, being able to cheat that on a turn two prevents a lot right. of nonsense from that deck that we just weren't able to do before, you know, for sure or prevent, you know, but so I'm looking at, um, your latest red trophy. We've got four moon main, um, and it's a Ragavan and, uh, uh, dragons red channeler deck. And one thing that I've always admired about you is that you have a handful of archetypes, especially red decks, especially red Obosh decks, that you're kind of willing to play anything in just to see how well it works. Oh yeah. So as a baseline, like what do you think about the latest state of Obosh Red? Do you think it is a Ragavan deck, or could it still potentially be a prowess deck and Ragavan is, you know, we're just experimenting Not necessary. at this point. Oh, for sure. It it I, I think the prowess builds are still viable for sure. And actually, let me just say real quick, this, that's another reason why I drifted towards more like Gigantha slash Obosh Prowess type variants as opposed to traditional Mono Red Prowess is I really like the customizability. Like the Bedlam Reveler builds kind of force you to maximize instants and sorceries, you know? I mm-hmm. love the way I can play like Pyrite Spellbomb. I can play Blood Moon in the main. I can play like all these cards that aren't instants or sorceries and, you know, they don't necessarily mess with that. But, you know, uh, I do um, I do think that Prowess is a is still viable. See, the only thing though is that for me, turn two Blood Moon is still a little too good to pass up. Yeah. Honestly, if it wasn't for turn two Blood Moon, I don't think Ragavan would necessarily be 
mandatory. I don't, I don't, I don't like using the term mandatory anyway, because I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of players can find a lot of success. Um, but I, I will say as long as Amulet Titan is in the format, as long as all of these, like, as long as all of these janky kind of, maybe janky is not the right word, but as long as all of these kind of off the beat, weird combo decks that we're seeing like still like new ones popping up all the time which thankfully almost all of them are like two or three colors uh, and and are you know have some color intensity to them but since there's like all these like cascade type decks all these different types of combo decks which incidentally happen to be at least a little soft to blood moon Mm -hmm. uh, having access to turn two blood moon for me like I, i just couldn't imagine going out there in the format without right now because honestly that's been a big that's i i don't know how many how many games against like matchups that otherwise would be unwinnable um, I would have been able to win if I wasn't able to stick a turn to blood moon. And then in the sideboard, of course you have pillage too. I mean, just like juking them with blood moon, as I say, is just a big right. source of wins, especially on turn two on turn two blood moon can some, you'd be surprised how many decks blood moon can juke if you're getting it out on turn two, you know? So I'm a occasional Ponza player and I have drank the blood moon Kool-Aid. I, I almost want to ask like, why don't you play more Ponza, considering how much you appreciate Blood Moon effects, especially on turn two? You know, I've been kind of uh, interested in maybe trying Ponza. I mean, of course, you know, one one answer you could you could give, I suppose, is that it's a two color deck, and I'm not necessarily known for playing two color decks. But but I I, 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 I I've played two color decks before. I mean, you know, I've dabbled in different splashes for Merfolk and. I even played Red White Prowess for a while, although if you go back to those old Red White Prowess lists, uh, you'll notice that I, I almost always keep the white to like almost the bare minimum. Um, but that being said, I, I'm certainly not – I'll certainly play a two-color deck if it's powerful enough and if it's uh, if it's fun enough for me to play and all of that. Um, but I guess there's like a couple reasons. I mean one thing is that like I just don't have infinite time, believe it or not, as much as much mm-hmm. content as I put out. I mean already like I actually am spending a lot of time on Magic. I – if, if in addition to like the five decks I play now, if I play like another deck like Ponza, it's just it's kind of like where does that rabbit hole end, right? Because it, it, you know, there's a little bit of like a an OCDness kind of about me that that honestly, if I played Ponza, I'd probably end up trying to make like a two color deck of every of each different type of color combination, and sure. and at that and at that point, like I'm way too deep down the rabbit hole in a way. So there's there's part of that, you know. But um, I have nothing against Ponza actually. Um. I would say that uh, I would say I do kind of like I definitely am inclined on a theoretical level to um, you know and of course maybe there's some ego involved here too. That I mean I'm I'm kind of inclined on a theoretical level to to think that uh that these Obosh variants are probably are, are probably have at least some some you know not insignificant advantage, but um. At the same time, uh, I do actually recognize that these Ponza decks are actually conceptually very similar at this point, especially now that we're yes. not really playing many prowess creatures. It's, it almost feels like a mirror match now whenever I play Ponza because uh, um, – but Ponza decks are all over the place too. I've seen some play Ragavan themselves. I don't think that's the norm. But right. um, but yeah, they're all over the place. Like I never know what I'm going to face against them. Maybe they feel the same way against me because, I mean, obviously I'm always <laughs> – like, yeah, that's the thing. Like uh, there are some versions of Ponza that are maybe only like – only like Greenlands and uh, and a few other cards that are kind of off and otherwise like there's a lot of similar cards being played now so mm-hmm. it, it's it, yeah I don't know what else to say other than that they're very very similar decks and they're probably they're probably about the same <sighs> yeah I, I really I there's, unfortunately I don't think I can say that much more because I haven't necessarily played Ponza all I can say is that it is actually very very similar to this deck now what is it about the monocolor decks that capture your imagination? Uh, I think part of it is honestly just um, my desire to uh, to kind of um, see how far I can push things. Mm-hmm. Like my my thinking is always more I won't 
try to splash a color unless I think it's necessary. Um, for whatever reason, I think a lot of Magic players start start with like multiple colors uh, for a deck in their mind, and they'll almost try to like just throw another color in there. Like they'll they'll try to like shoehorn another color in there in a way, which I have nothing against that, other than just for whatever reason. For whatever reason, maybe my my thinking has always been a little more. Uh, I start with one color, and if for whatever reason one color just um, I just feel like I need to I, I really need access to another color, then I start thinking about maybe I'll splash another one. And and believe it or not, one one of the advantages of modern, um, you know, modern see, see modern has two things going for it. Everybody knows that modern has better mana. So on the one hand, you could look at it like, why are you not playing another color? Because modern has some of the best mana, second only to legacy, basically out there. Mm-hmm. It's never it's, it's easier to splash another color in modern than almost anywhere else. But another way to look at it though, and I don't think a lot of people are looking at this the way I do, but you see another advantage modern has is since it has such a large card pool, you get access to a lot of interesting um, a lot of interesting cards within one color that can do things that, like in standard, you know, red has no business doing. I mean, I mean, obviously, like Blast Zone was in standard for a decent amount of time, but obviously, think about Blast Zone for example. I don't know if modern standard has anything close to something as flexible as that that we can just throw in the main deck, even you know. Sure. Um, so, like when you have access to cards like that, Blast Zone, Ratchet Bomb, whatever, whatever it may be, um, I just find that I don't necessarily need to be splashing other colors as much and i actually find that you know being monocolor it's it's it has some advantages that i think are oftentimes uh under underappreciated i mean obviously taking less damage is a is a big one but also just like for example and i think this deck is a big one the fact that i will never ever color screw myself off of another color and i yeah. know ponza will almost that will almost never happen but trust me i play merfolk and actually if there's ever a deck that can actually color screw ponza off its green it's merfolk but believe me, the number of games I've won against Ponza where they stick a Blood Moon and I spreading seize all their remaining forests, right? <laughs> like it, it, it comes up, and that will never happen to me with this deck. So just saying, I love yeah. it. I also have to ask, and I feel like I, I probably should have asked this already, and I'm going to get angry emails if I don't bring this up. But what's the deal with Hammer of Bogarden? I can tell you love this card. You keep adding it to your red decks. Is it? just one of your new favorite pet cards or do you think there's something here that people are not paying close enough attention to okay well first of all shout out to dylan cruz um i forget the name of his uh magic channel on uh on on youtube but i, I think he's got his, his name will pop up i think if you search him but mm-hmm. so first of all shout out to him because you know while i'd love to take credit that like i totally thought this up and it definitely seems like a very Hayashi card uh it was definitely him who suggested it but I do actually think Hammerberg Garden has a lot going for it. Um, and uh, it might seem a little weird because I know it seems janky as all heck. <sighs> and okay, you know, and forgive me because I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go on a slight tangent. I promise to keep it a little, I promise to keep it brief. But the reason why I'm on Hammerberg Garden is because originally uh, another user actually named Frederick LeMay suggested that I try, uh, you know, Igneous Inspiration from, um, from Strixhaven, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the lesson cards. That was a new card. So obviously nobody's really tested it much before. So, you know, like Hammerberg Garden has a certain stigma in that it's existed for a long time. So the th- the immediate thought is like, well, why hasn't anybody been playing it by now if it's if it's good, right? Well, obviously, Igneous Inspiration didn't have that. So I was all over trying that as soon as he suggested it. I'm like, well, I got to try this out. And see, the interest, and you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to cut this short. I'm just going to say, at the end of the day, Igneous Inspiration, um, it didn't ultimately work out. But what I did discover was actually a three mana, three damage to play, to creature a player sorcery speed was actually pretty good. Um, and, and when I say that, obviously I know that 
that like, you know, if that's all you get, that's pretty bad. But I'm just saying like that as a baseline, because obviously in, in Inspiration's case, you get to either draw a card and discard a card or you get to get a lesson card from your sideboard, right? So it's not just that, you know what I mean? What, yeah. I, what I found out was actually just that baseline, that baseline plus you get something else. Like I was killing, I was killing Stormwing Entities. I was killing, um, I mean, I don't know, Prowess Creatures that like Shocks wouldn't. I was, uh, I don't know what else to say other than just that, it surprised the heck out of me that the three mana wasn't as big of a problem. I thought if there was going to be a problem with inspiration, it was going to be that it was going to be three mana. It, it wasn't one of the biggest reason with that card is that um is that it just mangles your sideboard. That's that's like that's the problem. I mean, if you ha- if you could have like ten in uh, ten like lesson cards that are just like a separate sideboard, then honestly, I might still be on inspiration because mm-hmm. I'm not going to get too much into it. But that that card actually was pretty good. It just it just couldn't justify just it completely eating up all my sideboard. But um, that's actually when Dylan Cruz suggested Hammer Bogarden when I was kind of kind of like uh, expressing my thoughts on inspiration and where I was at. And he's like, "Well, how about Hammer Bogarden?" And then I'm like, "Oh, I'm like for real." Actually, I think I I, I think this is kind of unhem Hayashi like. I think I may have been even a little dismissive at first. Where I'm like, "Oh, geez, I love that card," but I'm like. But I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't draw you a card. Uh, it doesn't. But I was. But the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, gee, how much different is this from Igneous Inspiration? I mean, like, obviously, the advantage of Inspiration is that, like, if you get, say, um, if you get, say, oh, I don't know, uh, um, the Summoning Spirit, Spirit Summoning, or whatever it's called, uh, sure, Elemental Summoning, sure. yeah, sure. the one that gives you a three-two. That um, that's probably one of the more basic ones that you fetch. I mean, if you think about it, like. It's not. It's a little. It's more mana efficient than Hammer of a Garden in that you pay three mana, you deal with something, and then you get that you get that spirit card. But on the other hand, it is just a three-two spirit. It's relatively easy to deal with, and it is card advantage. But it's also like uh, it doesn't necessarily have. It's a little more mana efficient, but it's also not necessarily incredibly uh, game altering. Um, and when I just thought about like Hammer of a Garden, like as compared to uh, as compared to that. I just thought to myself, well, I don't get necessarily the access to immediate card advantage the same way, mm-hmm. but I do have the ability to, you know, get like a lot of late game card advantage again and again. And I just thought to myself, like, really, if you know, when I was looking back to my time experimenting with uh, Igneous Inspiration, I just, I just thought to myself, you know, if at the end of the day, if the baseline stat is good, three mana, three damage, you know, creature, player, even if it's a sorcery, you know, I just thought like. If this secondary ability is even somewhat good, there might be something here. So I, I did actually give it a shot, and um, you know I don't think I necessarily completely was sold in it at first, but the more and more I played with it, I just noticed I really liked being able to deal with all these three toughness creatures that are in the format. I really liked, um, you know, the the baseline was still good, but here's the thing about Hammer Garden that I think a lot of people are missing. You know, sure against a lot of like aggressive decks um i don't know decks that like i mean combo decks where like you have to win quickly it's you're not really going to ever see the um you're not you're never going to see the recursion so and and for whatever reason i think when i see a lot of players play it online i I, it just seems like they're not running into necessarily a lot of control or a lot of like the grindier types of mid-range decks out there Mm -hmm. um that's where it really shines particularly against control actually i mean mid-range sometimes um some sometimes you'll just you'll just get them before uh before it gets that late or they'll get you but but it's really so, against. So, are you control, saying like yeah. this is good against these Merktide decks, for instance, or whatever is running like actual Counterspell these days? Yeah, I see. Merktide is a. I'd say it's probably like. Um, it's probably good, but it's not. 
you're you're still going to mostly be seeing it for its baseline of three mana for three damage. It's uh you'll see, maybe maybe see the recursion come up maybe ten percent of the game maybe twenty percent. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not really. A, it's not honestly. It's mostly against control that you see the recursion come up, maybe like fifty percent or more of the time. Um, against like uh, against Merktide. Here's another thing too. It's it is actually kind of in a way skill intensive. Like there there is there is a certain finesse in being able to correctly use Hammer Garden because especially in this deck where you where you have the ability to like flashback the uh, Pyromancer tokens and. Um, I, you know, they play Fury. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff you can do or play Obosh. There's a lot of stuff you can do with five mana, but just being able to correctly evaluate where sometimes you're like, geez, like if they, if they stick a Dragon Rage Channeler next turn, I'm going to be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, some, like a lot of times I'm like, well, I got my hammer in here. I'll just return it to my hand. Right. And you'd be surprised how many times, bam, next turn they drop like a Dragon Rage Channeler. Right. And it's like, that's where hammer shines. But of course, of course, you know, that, um, that's why I say maybe like 10 or 20% of the time it comes up or so, because a lot of times against Merktide, you, you do have other things to do with your mana for the most part. Um, but it's really with control against control that you really see hammer uh, it's recursion really being a game changer. Um, I don't know what else to say other than that. I mean, I guess you can look at some of my content, which I'm hopefully going to have more with hammer coming up, you know, uh, more games against control, maybe where I show it off, but for whatever reason, Maybe because they use force and negation against Blood Moon oftentimes early. So like usually they, they have more force and negation targets than necessarily just Hammer Bogarden. But a lot of times, at least one of these things squeaks through and they don't like they don't exile with force and negation. And then at that point, I mean, like it, I can just keep returning it to my hand. And I mean, like obviously if they if they drop a planeswalker, you have to just get that off the table so you're not wasting mana returning it to your hand. But the fact that you can use this to kind of pepper at their life total. And uh-huh. then like and then like you've just got extra burn in your hand a lot of times when they do drop a planeswalker, it can also help finish it off there. Um I mean, it's something that you kind of just have to see in action, other than just that a lot of games against control, they kind of stall out. And when they stall out, you just keep hammering at them and <laughs> sometimes and, and you'd be surprised. Like, yeah, sometimes they can't they, they they only have so many cryptic commands and whatnot, and believe it or not, I I've hammered I've hammered quite a few control players uh to death. Um, even without like ensnaring bridge, and then ensnaring bridge is the other is the other thing that helps out a lot. There's there's a there's a decent amount of decks like Shadow is a is a good example where Shadow plus Hammer is a really really good alternate kind of win condition that you'd be mm-hmm. surprised how often comes up. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, for sure. So, um, you know, you mentioned Merfolk as another deck you play. I know you've also been a champion of like mono black decks, especially vampire adjacent mono black decks. Um. And and then you wrote here that you you have some experience with like white stone blade death and taxes strategies along with infect. How how often do you cycle between these decks? Do you usually focus in on one like for a given period of time after a format has shaken up, or do you try to touch on like all of these after new sets or whatever as you get new ideas, just to keep abreast of like what's changing in some of your favorite strategies and how you can continue to elevate them? I usually like trying trying all of them if you know even in like in a new meta. Um, I mean, theory crafting only takes you so far. Um, certainly, like in like combo heavy metas, you can kind of intuit that Merfolk is probably going to be better positioned than it is in like uh, you know mid range removal heavy type type formats. But that being said, you still never know for sure, and it's never ceased to amaze me certain formats where some decks have been more dominant than others. Like, um, like I'm trying to remember back uh, to like there was a time when Merfolk was particularly. You know what it was? It was the Oko era. Actually, Merfolk mm-hmm. was actually killing it for me back in the uh, Oko era, if I remember correctly. Um, 
And uh, I mean, it is something that if you look back at it, you can understand why it's because uh, like Merfolk doesn't necessarily care if they gain life. It also doesn't right. necessarily care that much of its creatures gets elks because their big baseline isn't necessarily that much more powerful. It can it, it has access to a lot of counters. But I mean, there's a lot of like theoretically, if you look back at it, you can obviously theorycraft why Merfolk would be pretty good against Oko. But at the time, it, none of us necessarily knew this. So like my, my, my one of my instincts was that maybe it wouldn't be that great because a lot of times the Oko decks happen to also be packing, you know, a decent amount of other removal. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe that would be a problem. But, you know, long story short, I, I to answer your question, I do like to try each one of these decks in a new format um, if I can, because obviously I, I only have so much time. So like, for example, my uh, right now, my model black deck has been a little bit uh, has been a little bit neglected. And that is that's has nothing to do with the performance. It's just I literally don't have time to be playing all these decks all the time. So for, sure. and for whatever reason, just model black has been a little neglected lately. But I do try to try all of them to get a feel for, you know, where they're at. And then obviously the one that's doing the best, which a lot of times lately is going to be the red one. I kind of start running with that, you know. Do you find that you gravitate to specific types of playstyles or strategies, or is it a matter of you know seeing what you can do within all five monocolored tents and and kind of taking it from there? I definitely gra- gravitate towards a certain kind of playstyle. Um, I think you know definitely if you look at like my Merfolk decks. Uh, I, I I don't play them like straight aggro. I mean, the same way I don't I, I don't play mono red necessarily like uh like straight go for face. I don't play merfolk like straight uh straight aggro. Yeah. I uh I like I actually play mer. Somebody joked that I played merfolk like a Delver deck, but I think that's really spot on. It's kind of like a I I stick merfolk and then I try to like control the board with counter magic removal whatever chalice sometimes and I don't know for whatever reason that's that's just worked out for me more. Um. I guess I guess part of it is also that like I feel like going more pure aggro, uh, it has its places, but I feel like that can make you a little more glass cannon like because like there are some matches you'll just steamroll, but then there's other matches you have like no chance against. And I just find that if you make it a little more controlling slash mid range type, um, it gives you it gives you a better ability to kind of leverage your format knowledge and mm-hmm. you know uh, whatnot to to be able to kind of finesse out some wins that you might not have been able to get otherwise and. You know, it gives you a little bit of a little bit of extra game against like everything. Maybe there's a reason, for example, why Reed Duke is in love with Jun because you know, <laughs> that Jun has that quality in Spades. You know, yeah. Um, and 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 I think you can see that in the other decks too. All of them are are definitely kind of mid rangey, like and a little bit more on the grindy controlling kind of side. Except for in fact, because obviously in fact, <laughs> in fact by its very nature, it kind of has to be a little more of a glass cannon type deck. But even there. The fact that I play Sylvan Scrying as a way to have access to like a virtual eight kind of ink moth nexuses, mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, I have like a little toolbox thing I can do with that too. That it's not doesn't necessarily make me more mid rangey, but it does it does give me access to a little more finesse, maybe I'd like to think. So I don't know. I guess yeah. you, you, I think you can see some of my philosophy and obviously the playing all four of you can see that in all my decks basically. So Oh, I can relate. That's how I start. Any deck that I put together, I always start with just like 24 lands and then four of everything else and then start kind of <laughs> yep. making adjustments based on the curve or what I think might be good in multiples or worse in multiples. So I, I love your four of approach to, to deck building. I, I don't recommend playing four of everything for like every single type of cards. If, if you'll notice with my decks, I, I, I play very certain types of cards and I, and basically any type of card I play is basically going to be good as a four of, at least I'd like to think, including, mm-hmm. yes, Hammer Bogarden, because, you know, like I said, against the control deck, sometimes you need more if they force a negation one. Sometimes you just don't see any and sometimes against like decks that go really grindy, you need lots of them. But anyway, neither here nor there other than just that, um, 
for the most part, if I'm playing a card in my deck, it's basically good as a four of, because I have played some cards in the past, like for example, that five mana Chandra, like Chandra Pyromaster or something. That card's just not good as a, as a, as a four of. So like I was kind of thinking about cutting it down to like a two of, but just with me, a lot of times if I'm cutting it down, a lot of times I just cut it all together. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> sure. Do you think that just makes deck building a little easier or is it really about card evaluation and your you know, maybe having an approach of why play a card if it's not going to be good as a four of. Oh, oh yeah. So um, I think both. Uh, yeah. So first of all, definitely hit up the hit the nail on the head. For the most part, I really do think that the better cards are usually are usually by their very nature just better in four ofs. Because think about it, like like Fury, for example. Fury is so flexible. It's an excellent early game removal spell that can give you card advantage even when you're pitching it. At, late in the game, it can give you insane card advantage, and it's also just a six effectively six power creature for five mana. Mm-hmm. Like you know, Fury is just an inherently a really good card that, you know, I, I did intuit from the beginning. It was probably going to be okay, but then it obviously took me a little while to fully implement it. But but um yeah, and, and, and I'll use Fury as an example, for example, I, uh, to uh, Chandra Pyromaster, because actually one of the reasons I went back on Fury, from what I recall, is that I, I was actually experimenting with these other five mana like Haymaker type cards. Um, one of them was Chandra Pyromaster, which which actually, let me tell you, when that thing gets going, that thing just crushes. Um, it's like, let me, let me just let me look it up. It's like, uh, I think it's, it's from the discard- core set, right? Oh, uh, Chandra Heart of Fire. That's it. Excuse me. Chandra Heart of Fire. Uh, yeah, it's a five mana uh, for a five loyalty planeswalker. Yeah, plus one, discard your hand, exile the top three cards of your library. Yeah, deal two damage to any target, plus one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can see, like, if you if you stick this thing and you can defend it, this thing this thing just runs away with the game. No um, doubt. Yeah. The issue I had with it, though, is that obviously as a four of, it's just like, it's just too clunky if you draw multiple of them. You, you can't play them early. Um, oftentimes, like, if if you draw, like, uh, multiple of these and you're not able to set up a good early game, then you just put yourself in a situation where they can keep kind of picking these off if you're playing them and they don't have any defense. Uh, and of course, you know, you could, you could snipe stuff off for two mana, but I think the main issue is just that it's, it's just that it's five mana and it takes, it takes a while to come on to come online um believe it or not i actually really preferred um what is it called uh burgy burgy slash a hornfell right right right. like the combo card basically exactly yeah believe it so so my thought process there um before i uh before I started, I think, uh, and actually, p- part of this was also getting back to Hammerbow Garden, but also part of this was, I think, was was I think, you know, my thought process with Fury too, eventually. But, um, but yeah, like the Hornfell uh, uh, Burgi card, I-, I think is a good example of of why cards that you can play as a four of a lot of times are just better because no matter because think about it, no matter how many copies of, of Chandra you play, at the end of the day you might draw this before you're ready to, before like it's going to be good. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're, you're going to draw it and it's going to be a five mana card that just rots in your hand and does nothing. Even if you have one in your deck, I, I know like the odds of that happening are less, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's a problem that Burgi and Hornfell just don't have. I actually found that, believe it or not, Burgi and Hornfell compared very favorably to Chandra Heart of Fire because Hornfell is really not that far off from uh, from what Chandra Heart of Fire does, if you, if you think about it. I mean, and I'll tell you, when I resolved Hornfell a lot of times, a lot of times I just ran away with the game. I mean, the difference between between playing two cards off of the top of my library and three and, having, and the difference between having to pitch a card, which oftentimes wasn't even that, like, that necessary, you know, it... 
I, I don't know what to say other than that. A lot of times, Chandra compared to Hornfell is kind of a kind of a win more card in a way. Like at the end of the day, Hornfell is a super powerful like haymaker type um, five mana card, and Burgi um, is a pretty respectable three mana three three creature type card. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not still on it, so like yeah. I, I do think I have better options, but. I'm only giving this example to explain why I think a lot of times cards that you can play as a four of are just kind of better by their very nature. I do think that Burgi and Hornfell are just kind of better cards than Chandra Heart of Fire. And I think it comes down to the fact that they have that flexibility that they can be either Burgi, Burgi or Hornfell. And Hornfell is like not that far off from Chandra in the first place in a way. You know what I mean? Um, I feel that. And, and that's also, by the way, a reason why I like Hammer Bagarden because I, I, like Hammer Bagarden in a way is kind of a split card in that it's the three mana three damage, but it's also that recursion engine late game. Like you could play a card that just has an insane late game, but it's de- a dead card if you draw it too early. Or you could play Hammer Bagarden, which is which can actually do stuff early in the game and can give you an insane late game. At least that's the way I see it. This might be one of the last topics we get to talk about, but I'm curious on your read on on modern as a format right now, like especially after the impact of Modern Horizons two, which I, I'm assuming we would agree it was a pretty big shakeup. I think a lot of people are are enjoying the cards from MH2. I, I know I am, and you know I still have PTSD from Hogak a little bit, and, and I, I definitely remember like how the original Modern Horizons just kind of absolutely destroyed Faithless Looting and, and made it way too strong for the format after being such oh, yeah. a good card for so long. Are you happy with the direction that Modern's going? Do you think it's a healthy format right now? That's an interesting question. Um... I have kind of mixed feelings because Modern Horizons 2, man, in some ways, Modern Horizons 2 is one of the best design sets in a long time. And in some ways, it's the worst design set in a long time. <laughs> I, I have such mixed feelings. I, I, I think I summarized it when somebody asked me this on Twitter. And I think I said something like, yeah, man, see, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, they printed so much so many busted cards but i said on the other hand it's like every single archetype including the stuff i play got some kind of busted card mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like they, they the cards are incredibly high powered but they pres- they did print all of them in a and, and honestly i gotta commend wizards they did pres- they did print a pretty good smorgasbord of kind of these very powerful cards across lots of different colors and different archetypes um honestly i think they pushed it a little bit it's looking. It's looking like they actually they actually threaded the needle here, though. I mean, I was watching and immediately, and immediately uh, I don't know, immediately some type of food deck just completely breaks the format <laughs> after sure, this. Sure. But yeah. but so so far so far it's kind of looking like they threaded the needle, and I don't know. Um, I will say one thing I don't like is I don't like them printing all these insanely powerful mythics that force me to have to keep buying this stuff, yeah. like Ragavan, for example. I. I love Ragavan, but I resent the fact that I had to pay more money than I would like to admit to get these things. You know, no doubt. Yeah, I feel that. Um, Don't you think it's a generally good thing if all the strategies are getting new busted cards, though, and it's a it's more of a rising tide lifting all boats situation as opposed to like just blue getting counterspell and, and subtlety, for instance, and like. It you know, being the obvious best strategy moving forward. You know, if the economy, if the magic economy wasn't really an issue, I would completely 100% agree. Like if the, if if sort of like, um, I mean, you know, and I'm not going to lie, I, 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 you know, haven't, I mean, you know, uh, knock on wood, I'm in a situation where my, my life right now where at least unless magic gets like insanely expensive or something, I think I'm going to be okay supporting this hobby. It's not going to break the bank or anything. But that being said, um, especially for newer players, and, and even to some extent me, I mean, like I said, having to drop like 
hundreds of dollars on new cards that come out is still kind of like not mm-hmm. not nice but it, like if, de- if definitely the the econ- the card economy was not a factor for sure i would completely agree that um that just printing lots of new cards that kind of like shake up the format that give like different archetypes something the experiment i mean that is kind of where magic's at i love that actually and so that's the way i have mixed feelings about modern horizons too because actually if it was if it wasn't for the um effect that this has had on like the the, the card economy it, it's a really good set it's it i think it's really made the game a heck of a lot more interesting actually it's just that cards like ragavan to a lesser extent i guess other other rares mythics and whatnot I, I'm a little concerned because I don't want this game to turn into like a pay for play type of thing, a pay to, a pay to, sure. uh, pay to play type of thing. Yeah. Um, like I said, knock on wood, I think for me, that may not necessarily be that big of an issue if things are, if things, you know, go well and whatnot, but like, but like, it's, this is not really the, I don't want Matt. Yeah. I want magic to be a game for everybody. And it just, Modern Horizons 2 has a lot of expensive cards that I think are really um, not conducive to that. So I don't know what else to say other than, yeah. Well, don't you think that's a, a modern thing, though? Because I, I do agree with you that I, I want Magic to be a game for everyone. And one thing that I appreciate about you know Magic design in general is that whatever your budget, you can find an outlet. Like whether it's Popper or Limited or Standard or even like playing for free on Arena. Like I feel like if you want to play Magic and you only have so much budget, you can find a way to actually cast spells and play lands. And then modern is is more of a a more exclusive perhaps experience for people who may have a little bit extra disposable income or a more expensive mana traders rental account. I I agree. I just think that I, I think we we can all agree probably though that I think modern modern sort of play, like a um modern like economy situation like the the cards kind of a lot of expensive cars being dumped into the format and the sort of barrier to entry, mm-hmm. I think, I think has spiked a lot. Like it's, it's been spiking a lot. Like I, I completely agree. It's fine to have different sort of tiers or different types of um uh, formats that have different types of budget constraints. But like my fear is, I mean, cause the thing is all of us have our limit. Like, yeah. and so like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's a, there's a point where even I get pushed out of the game and it, it, that's a little concerning to me is I, I, I want wizards to be a little careful with how much they push, because the thing is, whenever you push a bunch of new playable cards in the format, and a good chunk of those are rares and mythics, it, it it's it's going to tax people. This this is like a this is like another tax on our lives in a way. You know what I mean? We, we go about our daily business, we do grocery shopping, whatever. But then we also have this additional magic tax on our lives because we love this hobby. You know, at a certain point, if the magic tax becomes too much, like even you and me are are probably going to get taxed out of it, right? But like, th- I don't think there's any. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But that's my concern. Is I. I, I think like two big spikes. If it spikes too big, too hard, too fast, that could be a problem. You know, I, I totally feel that. But apart from the economy, though, do you think fun and gameplay wise, modern is in a fun, good, healthy place? Like, or do you think there's anything that's on the edges that might be a little bit too pushed or a little bit too efficient that people should keep an eye out for? That um, you know maybe isn't getting exploited as much as it could be, but has ha- poses the risk of maybe getting broken and even maybe needing a ban um i mean my initial instinct was that urza saga might be a problem but it's kind of looking like maybe that might be held in check i mean it just so happens that most for most colors do have something like spreading seas blood moon artifact or enchantment i mean enchantment removal mm-hmm. i don't know like I, honestly I, i'm gonna say this much i think if urza saga threads the needle i i think most of the cards probably will I'm a little bit I'm a little bit miffed at um at, at, to a, to a little extent at like uh 
crashing footfalls in a way, which obviously was a, it was an old card. But I mean, I guess like you know what it is. I don't like the way freaking Starless Agent is both an artifact and a creature. Like that's that's the only thing that frustrates me because that means deafening silence and um and ether sworn Canadas both can't fully <laughs> cover your bases. Right. Um. But you know it's okay, it's okay. I, I mean, the deck is. I, I can I can manage the deck, and everybody else can. It, you know, it's. I think it's basically fine. There are some cards that I like. I, I would really. I wish they would have redesigned Shardless Agent so it was an artifact creature. I would have been fine if it was just like a a two two creature. But whatever. It's neither here it's, nor there. It, it's funny you should mention that because I've been playing Footfalls a bit. I always forget that Shardless is an artifact creature. It, in, <laughs> at least in that deck, I feel like it's never really relevant to you know the combo at least. But then once you're like maybe have a Tarmogoyf in play, you're facing down a Tarmogoyf suddenly. It's like, oh great, I helped grow the Tarmogoyf. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? It's it, at the end of the day, I think. Like I said, I, I think my take is um, if Urza Saga threads the needle, I think probably I can't ima- I can't imagine Ragavan getting banned. Maybe that's just a little bit of my uh, bias though, because I love that card in a uh, in Mono Red Obosh. But um, mm-hmm. I, I just feel like a card that that literally dies to all removal and doesn't like, doesn't actually win you the game on turn two. Everybody know everybody knows like a bad, uh, a bad luck. They've got <laughs> a, a bad luck situation where like, they've got like a disc, a thought sees or something that they got off the top of their opponent's library. Most of the time that doesn't happen though. Um, yeah. Not going to lie. Actually, Ragavan's pushing it. That, that card is, um, that card is really freaking good, and obviously it's been a source of a lot of my wins. I don't think that's going to get banned, though. It's just, uh, I mean, I think it's like a, if you think about it, it's kind of like a one-mana Tarmogoyf, right? I mean, I mean, if the Tarmogoyf's been allowed to survive this long, right? I mean, I don't know, right? It's just a really, Maybe. really powerful one-drop, the way Tarmogoyf's been just a really, really powerful two-drop. I, I don't know. Like, What about Channeler? Like, I, I feel like we've kind of reached that stage post-MH2 where people are starting to recognize that. Maybe the the more push problematic card is Channeler just because like it's good as a one, one in, in filtering your hand. It's insane as a three, three flyer for one mana. I know you're playing it in your red deck win, like presently. Yeah. 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 I've kind of, um, I've grown to like the card a lot, man. It's just, it's always in, in my deck in particular, it's a little tough to, to like uh, know exactly what to cut right now. I'm cutting bone crusher giant for it. Um, but Man, I, I, yeah, that that card is actually. I'm, I'm going to say that card is probably better against a larger. It's it's better in a larger amount of um of decks, I think, because like I said, the main reason why I think uh, Ragavan is so good in our deck is uh is because of Turn to Blood Moon. That's like the main thing. Mm, um, I see. That just, that gives access. That gives you access to to a, to a, to a level of free wins that um that didn't really have before. If you're not necessarily playing a card like Blood Moon or another card that you really benefit a lot from ramping into by turn three. I would actually say, yeah, Dragon Race Channel is probably going to be the better card of the two. Like, if if we just didn't have access to Blood Moon, probably yeah, Dragon Race Channel would probably be better than um than Ragavan. But it's still kind of close though, because also Ragavan in our particular deck doesn't necessarily get turned on as fast as it does in other decks. But but for mm-hmm. sure though, but for sure, Dragon Race Channel are. But you see, this this is one of the reasons why I'm not necessarily that concerned about Ragavan getting banned because it's kind of like there's so many powerful cards they dumped into the format. And, and let's also be honest, like Sol- Monastery's Dispier and Skullscar Mage are also kind of stupidly powerful cards. I mean, let's totally <laughs> right. I mean, where does the, where does the banning end? Right. Like, <laughs> uh, that's the only issue. Um, I do think Dragon Race Channeler though, like that, that, uh, surveil ability that, that for me, that's one of the main things that's hyper powerful. Every time I put a card into my graveyard with that thing, it just feels, it feels like I drew a card and it's just, this is crazy. Yeah. <sighs> Fun. 
so many fun cards to talk about with you. Anything yeah. we didn't touch on that, that you want to bring up, either about these decks, <laughs> modern, or magic in general? Uh, yeah, I mean, not yeah, not that I can necessarily think of. Uh, definitely, it's been nice. Uh, it's been nice chatting. I think. Um, I, I think Magic's in a pretty, a pretty good place for the most part. Like I said, I just hope that. Uh, I hope the Wizards continues to thread the needle in uh, not overdoing it with super powerful uh, cards, or at least um, giving them to, to most of the other archetypes. And hopefully, uh, hopefully the uh, card economy doesn't end up becoming like a pay-to-play type thing. And I think, I think that uh, Wizards, there's actually still room to grow, actually, which is a crazy thought. Totally. Uh, we'll see, you know. Yeah. Matt, where can people find you online and, and keep up with the decks that you're building, iterating on, or even watch uh, videos of you play these decks? Oh, yeah. So uh, first you can uh, find me on uh, uh, on Twitter. I'm uh, at mhayashi. Or I guess I guess actually Twitter gave me uh, mhayash. For whatever reason, it cut off the I. <laughs> at mhayash. Uh, 5578012 there's pro- there's probably a million there's probably a bazillion m hayashis in japan so um <laughs> i uh, i'll include a link to your twitter account in the show notes so that people don't have to memorize that number to, to find you on there <laughs> yeah thanks and of course you can also find me on a uh, on youtube uh i have actually have two magic channels um i mean i have two channels on youtube uh i'm still kind of figuring out this whole youtube thing um but uh the my main magic channel is um uh, magic matt on youtube uh but honestly if you just search m hayashi you're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of stuff from both my magic matt and my m hayashi channel Mm -hmm. um but yeah my youtube channel is magic matt and then my second um channel on youtube is uh, m hayashi gaming um yeah i i I post the difference between the the two channels so right now i'm posting all my uh red deck wins and um merfolk uh, content on my main channel and also like my format updates or other things which i haven't necessarily done that in a little bit um but we'll see but like if i have some kind of like uh yeah i don't know f- format kind of commentary or something like that that usually goes on magic mat mm-hmm. magic mat is kind of my main magic channel in that sense because i mean definitely my red deck wins and merfolk decks are my main decks uh m hayashi gaming is kind of where i put the um the uh, red, the I mean the uh, white, black, and the <clears throat> green decks, and also where I just play some other, where I put some other games because like you know I do play other games from time to time. Like lately, I got the Capcom beat 'em up bundle, so I Sick. my my love for a final fight is being rekindled. So you can see some of my final fight escapades on there too, if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, that's basically yeah. I'll definitely check those out, and we'll have links to all three of your YouTube and Twitter accounts in the show notes. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Love love picking the brain of Magic players whose decks I actually have gotten to play. And like I said, I've, I've, I've won with some of your mono red decks. They hold a, a near and dear place to my heart. I reached a point eventually where I'd rather have played an M. Hayashi red deck than uh, Is It Prowess, you know, even though like Is It Prowess was arguably the best deck in the format for a while before Modern Horizons 2. And I had all the cards and I thought it was going to be a great stand deck. And then just never really scratch that itch, but your red decks, maybe because they have Blood Moon in them, always do. Oh, yeah. So well, appreciate your time, appreciate your brain, and I think that you are a positive force for the, the modern community, especially. Well, my pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, it's been a it's been a blast too. Thank you so much for having me here. And um, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> right on. If you out there listening haven't yet, make sure you follow M Hayashi on Twitter. 
and YouTube. Also, if this is your first time hearing this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out every week. If you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. And if you'd like to submit a question to The Dive Down or just reach out in general, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Matt, do you have a Patreon or, or any way that people can support your play and content? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, I uh, actually do. So um, I'm M, uh, M. Hayashi on uh, Patreon. And uh, yeah, if you want to see access, if you want to have early access to the um, content that I got coming up, uh, that's kind of the main thing I'm offering there right now. Um, but yeah, definitely it's appreciated. Thanks a lot. Of for course, the plug. yeah. We'll have that link in show notes too. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sign up for a Mana Traders account using promo code thedivedown2021. All one word. Get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, play more Red Dead!